You're listening to Kitchen Table Finance. Join Dave Shotwell and Nick Nauta as they cut through the complexity of financial planning and serve bites of investment advice that are both personal and practical. Hey, Dave, how are you doing today? Not bad, Nick. How are you? Fantastic. Opening day of baseball today. Big day in Michigan. <laughs> and it's it, it, it only lightly snowing outside. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Spring is here. <laughs> so, um, interesting topic today. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the psychology of money today. Drawing mostly from a book by the name Psychology of Money, written by a uh, guy named Morgan Housel. And it's been around for a little while. And I, I first heard Morgan speak, I think, in 2018 and read the book right after that. But it, uh, it lays out a lot of really neat concepts that I think, and, and you agree, that are really good to help think about your money. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I read it. I've been hearing about it and finally got around to reading it late last year, early this year. And there's just a whole bunch of different nuggets that just intuitively made a lot of sense that I think um, will be helpful for people to to hear from us and kind of explain and, and hopefully be able to use in their own financial planning. They're concepts that I think we've tried to work, help clients understand over the years. and. I just am not as uh, eloquent as Mr. Housel. So it's nice to have a uh, well thought out book that uh, walks you through it. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, we'll definitely put a link to the book in the show notes. So if you like some of the stuff we're talking about today, feel free to please check out the book. It's a a great read and something that I'm sure we'll uh, come back to several times um, in in kind of our financial planning and in this podcast. So I guess with that, Dave, uh, you want to, you know, take a shot at some of uh, maybe what your favorite parts of the book were? To start with, he, he, he kind of lays the groundwork by pointing out that retirement as a concept in human experience is very, very new, you know, and that like 401ks have only been around since 1978, Roth IRAs since 1998, index funds are about 50 years old. These things that we're trying to help people understand aren't Things we've got a lot of cultural, like a long cultural history of understanding and kind of in the background of all that is that so much of modern finance goes against what our brains were evolved to deal with. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you think about retirement. I mean, retirement in general is is kind of a, a new phenomenon, you know, um, as a part of Social Security, when that was enacted way back then, before then, there was kind of work and death. There wasn't a whole lot of, you know, retirement wasn't this 30-year experiment. It was uh, maybe a couple of years where you couldn't work anymore and, you you know, hopefully your family took care of you, something along those lines. So even retirement in general, let alone retirement planning as we see it today, relatively new. And and I I think you're right about the, you know, it's, you know, we're not, you know, finance, our brains aren't wired to kind of think that way um, because it's so new. 1870s, I believe, were, was when the first pension plans were developed, and that was in Germany. And the idea, and I don't think uh, I don't think this book goes into this too much, but just by way of background, the idea was to make room for younger workers more than anything, to get encourage people to leave the workforce so that younger to help solve an unemployment problem. So 
You know, it's, right. it's not then, something that the human mind has been trained over millennial millenniums to understand. And you talk about the 401k, the Roth IRA, you know, the Roth IRA only 30 years. So we, we haven't really thought too much, or excuse me, less than 30 years. We haven't really thought too much how to integrate things like that into financial planning, into retirement planning. So right. it's ever evolving. But, you know, I think the good thing about this book is kind of, you know, laying the groundwork for maybe how to think about some of that stuff a little bit differently than, you know, looking at it from the pure aspect of this is a numbers game and this is kind of what the numbers bear out. A lot of what he does in the early part of the book kind of dispels a lot of the misunderstanding around investing. I think some of the, some of the things that stood out to me were, you know, the idea that so much of we're kind of like trained to venerate these like so-called brilliant investors like like Warren Buffett. And that's an example he uses in the book quite a bit. And, and he points out that so much of, of that comes down to just doing the right things over and over again for a long period of time. Not necessarily luck, but the fact that the power of compounding works if you give it long enough. Yeah, absolutely. That was kind of a really eye-opener when you think about the, you know, the Warren Buffett story and kind of, you know, where he's at. Yes, he's widely considered mm-hmm. one of the greatest investors of all time, if not the greatest, but a large majority of that is the fact that he's also been able to do it well into his what is he coming up on 90 now? So mm-hmm. <laughs> And he started, you know, in his twenties. <laughs> he's younger than that, actually. Yeah, and and so he's got all this time on his side. And so the uh, the laws of compounding returns worked in his favor. And you know, we like to think there was some kind of genius behind it, but it was really more just compete repeating good things over and over again, rather than uh, making the you know a lot of brilliant moves. He does a great job of summing that up. One of the things that I wrote down in, in my notes on this book uh, that he said was, you know, good investing isn't about earning the highest returns. High returns tend to be one-off events that are hard to repeat. Good investing is more about getting a pretty good return that you can stick with and which can be repeated for the longest period of time. So, you know, that's letting compounding run wild by getting decent returns, not you know, trying to, to beat your neighbor. Well, and taking that a step further and you know, uh, and probably everybody who listens to this podcast knows I'm a sucker for a good Napoleon quote, but, uh, he, uh, the author quotes, uh, Napoleon is saying, you know, being a good general is doing the average thing while everyone around you is losing their minds. And that's really what he gets at it with, with this train of thought on investing is that if you can, if you can just consistently do the average thing while everybody's losing their minds about the, you know, what's going on in the news and what's going on in the markets, if you can just keep doing the right thing over and over again, you'll be miles ahead. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting because intuitively we all kind of know what the right thing is, but it's not that easy of, you know, knowing what the right thing is, isn't the hard part. 
that's kind mm-hmm. of the easy part. Doing it and living it is a whole different story. You know, I remember being in this business back in 2008 and knowing that, you know, sticking with it and not selling and not, you know, changing, altering course because things were really oh. bad was the right thing to do. But that doesn't mean that my emotions didn't get in the way and think, you know, maybe I'm wrong or having those moments of doubt while it's happening. Oh yeah, you know I, I I tell this story now, but at the time I didn't, you know, didn't share this with clients. But you know, in the middle of 2009, I remember, you know, after a particularly hard day of like the fourth or fifth client leaving my office, I'd given the same speech about you know how, you know waiting for the recovery and things would turn around, and calling a calling a uh, another advisor who I had worked with before but wasn't in my office, and just saying, are we still, you know. Do we still believe what we're saying? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, are, am I still okay saying this over and over and over again for the last eighteen months? Because it doesn't seem to be getting any better. And uh, yeah, it can be. It, the the market will uh, will try you and try your patience, and you've just got to keep doing the right thing consistently over and over again, regardless. Kind of related to that is just kind of this concept that he talks about, which is the survival mindset of financial planning. The biggest thing there is, you know, being financially unbreakable is more important than big returns. And I think what he means by that is, you know, making sure that if you have a period of bad returns, you can survive that is more important than being a brilliant investor that can get these humongous returns because humongous returns don't mean anything if you can't keep them or if you know if if when things go bad you you go bankrupt financially and and that's I think an important concept that sometimes we forget when it comes to investing is that that basics of you know making sure that you're on stable ground before you even think about you know, getting better returns, so to speak. And, and, you know, we're right back to where we always are on these podcasts where we're talking about, you know, making sure you have a contingency fund in place, making sure that not all of your money is in the market and at risk, because just when you need it most, it's going to be the worst time to take it out. And so he, he talks about a barbell approach and having, you know, taking, taking long-term risk or retirement and things that are long ways down the road, but in the short run, being very, very careful and very, very safe. And that's the same concept we we talk about with clients every day. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's so important. And I know we kind of even joke with ourselves about the fact that we can't make it, you know, 15 minutes into one of these without talking about contingency funds. But, you know, that's how you become unbreakable financially is having a good contingency fund, having cash in the bank for when things happen, making sure you're properly insured when it comes to, you know, transferring the major risks of something like a major health accident, a car accident to insurance companies so that, you know, if something bad happens, you're not going to, you know, basically ruin everything that you've built on the investment side. Right. Um, and, and, you know, another thing that he puts in there is, you know, planning is important, but uh, more important is planning on the plan, not going according to plan. So, right. you know, nobody, nobody plans financially on being in a car accident or being disabled, but, you know, making sure that you have those contingencies in place for those things. So if it doesn't go according to plan, you're, you know, unbreakable when it comes to the basic stuff, the boring stuff that, you know, doesn't yeah. get the headlines. And part of that, you know, is, is not just, 
not just being ready for whatever the world throws at you, but also recognizing that your own preferences and goals for the future are going to change and evolve. We're really, really lousy as a species of it, figuring out how our minds are going to change over time. And we need to be adaptable and have our finances be adaptable. Yeah. And, you know, it's just this, this concept of, and, and I think he touches on in the book of, you know, we, we kind of, our minds aren't designed to forecast our own futures very well in terms of, you know, I, I can kind of forecast where I'm at right now and where I might be in the next couple of years, but you know, I have no idea what I'm going to be or where I'm going to be in 30 years from now. And that's kind of essentially exactly what financial planning is trying to do is to, you know, predict where you're going to be in a long time from now. And that's just not, we're just not very good at that. <laughs> and so instead of trying to be good at it, we try to make sure that we're, we plan on not being good at it so that when things ultimately change as they met most of the time they do change. We're ready for that change. You know, we see it every day. We'll talk to a client when they're 60 and planning to retire in a couple of years. And what sounds like the ideal day in retirement will look totally different after they've been in retirement a couple of years. Well, you work your whole life to retire. And then, you know, I always tell people, you know, you think about retirement as this target date and you're doing all these things, your whole working life to get there. But how much time do you think about what in the world you're going to do when you get there? Yeah, I like the concept he put forth, you know, to kind of help with that of thinking of your life in 20-year blocks and your finances in, in terms of 20-year blocks. I think that's a useful, useful construct around that. It just helps to kind of break it down because it's so hard to vision outside of that. What a couple of the, the little gems about investments and life planning that I thought were really salient was he talks about how you need to recognize that you may be investing your money and your friend may be investing their money, but you're not necessarily playing the same game with the same goals and the same. So, so what's right for them or acceptable to them in terms of the risks and what they're doing doesn't, doesn't mean anything to you and doesn't need, you know, you, you can't get into this comparison game of, how you're going about implementing your plan. Yeah, you know, I think that's so true. And, you know, if you turn on the TV, you turn on CNBC or even the nightly news, a lot of times, you know, the information that's coming in from these people are, it just, it just doesn't, frankly, it just doesn't have anything to do with your own personal situation. So, you know, what Jim Cramer picking stocks has nothing to do with, you know, what's happening in, or what should be happening in your personal financial plan or your portfolio. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's still around. And neither does the, you know, the head fund, the hedge fund manager that makes the, you know, uh, uh, the front page news in the Wall Street Journal talking about his projections or, you know, what they're doing has literally no bearing on what you're doing because they're playing a, a completely different game than what you are. Get ready for the biggest marketing summit in Lansing's history. Circle Friday, May 6, 2022 on your calendar. Zedia Media will be hosting the summit at the Royal Scott Banquet Facility, 
All the big bosses of marketing will be there, including key sponsors like M Connections, Super Web Pros, Uno Deuce Multimedia, Paper Image, Michigan Creative, Jungle Jane, and Weathervane Roofing. Tickets are on sale now at ZediaMedia.com. That's Z-E-E-D-I-A Media.com. 17 presentations on marketing trends you need to know for your business. Big prizes, lots of fun. Your presence will be honored. Your absence will be noted. Or, or even in a in a more, I guess maybe maybe another way to apply the same idea is, you know, investing in rental real estate may be the perfect thing for your neighbor to do, but just because they're successful at it doesn't mean that it's the right thing for you. And you know that there, there's lots of different answers. And we can't get too caught up in what everyone else is doing. Just keep keep your head down and keep doing what you're doing. Another one of my little favorites that I'm stealing from from here in client conversations is that you've got to remember wealth is the money that you didn't spend. And therefore, you know, it's it's the invisible result of not spending your money. You know, the guy that rolls up in the brand new Mercedes Benz, people have a tendency to look at that and think, oh, he must be very, very wealthy, right? And all you really know about him is he's got a shiny car that costs, you know, $100,000. You don't know if he's got another $100,000. And all you know is that's the car he chooses to drive. But we tend to look at those kind of things and think that they are the outward signs of wealth when real wealth is the money you didn't spend on the car or the big house. It's, it's, it's the, it's the result of not doing those things. And that real wealth as, as, uh, the author looks at it is control of your time and being able to do what you want to do. No, that's so true. You know, and if you want to keep score with, you know, what your neighbors are doing, you should definitely do it in terms of, you know, not necessarily wealth, but in terms of money or the amount of money or the toys that they have, but more along the lines of control of time, because that's the only thing that everybody's on the same playing field, right? We all have the same number of hours in the day and same number of days in the week. And so, you know, your control over that is really the the true definement of your quote unquote wealth. Not that you should, you know, be comparing yourself to your neighbor, but if you were going to, that'd be a much better use of your time to do. It would be, you know, your use of time as opposed to the money that you have or what you spend it on for sure. Another thing that I thought was really interesting about this, and it kind of relates to some of the stuff that we're talking about of, you know, the the news and, and comparisons is this this idea of seduction of pessimism. And so, you know, it's this, you know, if you look at the news, you say that we're going to have a big recession and newspapers are going to call you up and you're going to be on the front page. Say you're headed for an average growth and nobody really cares. We're, we're dealing with that right now, right? And, and part of that that he points out is like bad, bad things that happen tend to happen all at once where good things, and we're, we're talking about finances here, the good things back to Warren Buffett accrete slowly over time, right? And so here we are. Here we are um, three months into kind of a negative market right now. And everybody's focused on that and everybody's kind of on edge about it. But we are coming off of 
three years of astounding market growth that just happened a little bit every day over time, right? And that, you know, of course that happened. That's what's supposed to happen. The market's supposed to go up. No big deal, right? But boy, you know, now we're, we're down a little bit from that peak and it's, it's engenders so much more pessimism than the other generates optimism. The, the concept of loss aversion, right? Most people are, you know, more concerned with losing than they are necessarily with gaining and that affects them more then, you know, so a, a 10% gain affects them less than a 1% loss. Daniel Kahneman did great research on this. And that's, that's another book that that's my favorite non-investing investing book that we should talk about another day is his uh, thinking fast and slow. But he, uh, he worked very hard on that on the psychology of law and how people our, our reaction to loss is, is much more acute than our reaction to gain. You know, he kind of breaks it down. Morgan Housel kind of breaks it down, you know, when in talking about investing that you must identify the price of success and volatility and loss amid the long backdrop of growth. That's the price and you have to be willing to pay it. This has come up a couple of times in the, in the last couple of weeks with conversations with clients. We got, we had all the good outcome for the last three years. Now we're paying the price after the fact and that kind of makes it feel a little bit more acute, I think, that we've already had the, the gain. It's not, not like you pay the, it's not like you pay the price at the same time, if you will. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, great. You know, thinking back to our conversation on inflation, that was, you know, one of your, your main points on inflation um, and as it relates to the market. There's so many good things in this book. I think we could probably go on for hours. The idea of optimism and pessimism. And he talked about the, you know, imagining an alien coming down and evaluating our economy on New Year's Eve of 2007 and then again on New Year's Eve of 2009 and looking around and thinking everything looked very much the same. You had people out in Times Square reveling. You had the same number of offices and the same number of office buildings and, you know, um, everything looks very much the same, but half a, you know, several trillion dollars of, 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 of investments were wiped out in the meantime and housing values had slunk. And the only thing that had really changed was the way we thought. And that it was, you know, that economically we were pretty much just as well off as before, but we went from believing that home values would keep going up to feeling like they were worthless. And, you know, the stock market got cut in half, but all of the economic potential was still there. And the, the thing that came to my mind as he was saying this is, is really what we're getting at with that ability to not make mistakes with being able to gap, bridge that gap of understanding and wait until people come back around to, uh, you know, where, where the economy is actually headed. And I think, you know, in, in more than that too, we have so many scenarios where people kind of, you know, complain about the times that we're living in and don't really think about how really phenomenal and, and how easy we have it compared to where we were, you know, a hundred years ago, let alone 25 years ago. And with the technology that we have and, you know, how we haven't really had any wars in a long time, like we, you know, the world wars and, and it's really, you know, crazy how we can be so focused on what's happening today and, and not really put it into a long-term perspective. 
and kind of along those lines too, I, I love some of the stuff that he talks about with history and, and history of the markets and, and, and kind of one of his big things is history is, is mostly the study of surprising events, right? So the normal everyday stuff doesn't make the history book. It's the surprising stuff that happens. And the, the mistake that we make, especially as investors, is we use that as a guide to the future in terms of what the expectations are. And when really the correct thing, the correct way to view that is how, or, but what you need to learn from surprises is that the world is surprising. There's a quote here, uh, new, new, new things that have never happened before happen all the time, I think is the way he put it. I think that's a, a Scott Sagan quote. And it's just so interesting. And, and it's funny, you know, being in this industry long enough, and one of the things that we hear, and, and one of the things that came out of 2008 was, you know, everybody lost money. And then so what happened is we started coming up with strategies for how we, how do we not lose money in 2008? And so we even go back and, and we backdate these strategies and be like, look, if you just did this in 2008, you would have only lost a little bit of money or you would have made money. And then we try to say, well, that's what you should do in the future. And inevitably it fails because the, the past isn't going to repeat itself the way it has it's going to be something different. And whatever worked back then, it's easy to backdate it. You know, you tell me what time period you want to live through and I'll tell you exactly how to invest and what to invest in. But that's not the way the world works. That's not how the future is going to work. And, and to think that it is, is a big mistake. It, that, that all brought to mind another great book out there that we can talk about someday is Nassim Tlaib's uh, Black Swan. And uh, you know, I saw, I saw a headline not long ago, I didn't read the article. <laughs> the, the headline was something like it, like something that was happening. Is this the next black swan? But the idea being, you know, they talked about the financial crisis as being a, a black swan event of, you know, one, something you'd never expect. And, and it's like, by definition, if we think something is going to be the next black swan, it's not a black swan. Right. And, and the point of that digression being, Whatever the next financial crisis is going to be, it isn't going to be anything we've thought about. It's not going to be anything we've imagined. It's not going to be anything that compares to crises that we've done, but seen before and learned to manage because they wouldn't be a crisis the next time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and you know, I kind of think back to, you know, there's always somebody that quote unquote predicts the next downturn, right? So in 2008, there were people that kind of knew what was happening with the uh, mortgage-backed securities and, and all that. But even they had no idea the ramifications and how that would affect the economy. They just knew that there was an issue. So yeah, you know, uh, the, the big short, you know, great movie and great book, Michael Lewis, about, about a few handful of hedge fund guys that saw the financial crisis coming. But the other shoe to drop that never got talked about is every day there are hedge fund managers making the same kind of bets and thinking certain things are going to happen and they're wrong. And I always think of, I always think of what grandpa used to say, you know, even a stop clock is right twice a day. So yes, if you, if you predict gloom, if you predict bad things long enough, eventually you're going to be right once. But if in the same time you govern yourself as though that's going to be the norm every day, you're never going to get anywhere. To be frank, they don't make movies and they don't write books about people that were wrong about their predictions of what's going on in, in the economy. There was a follow-up story on one of those hedge fund managers. I can't remember his name, but it's the, well, I can't remember which one it was. But he basically has, has made a whole bunch of things moved since then and regarding oil and different things that were just 
you know, not, let's just say not nearly as brilliant. So um, one last thing I'd like to cover real quick, Dave, is this concept that he brings up, which is margin of safety. And, and the purpose is to kind of render your forecast unnecessary. And that's something we could probably even do a full podcast on, but it's definitely something, you know, when we're doing financial planning, we're always trying to put in a margin of safety. Yeah, that was when I was reading that, I thought, okay, yeah, that's built right into some of the software we use, using Monte Carlo simulations and things to kind of take the guesswork out of what's going to happen to kind of say, it's going to be a wide range of outcomes. We know we're never going to be exactly right in anything we forecast, but we want to make sure that whatever those, that within that range, you're going to be okay. And, and the, the bigger picture, how that, what that translates into is when you have room for error, then you can endure that range of potential outcomes, right? Because we can't, you know, we never project your future based on a perfect market that goes up 8% every year. And, and because of that, you know, if, if we don't get 8% a year, then we can really, you know, kind of mess things up. And so that's where building that, that margin of safety so that we can go through and make sure that you can stick with it when in those lean years when it doesn't go according to plan. Great book. I, I, I think this, there's something in there for everybody that wants to pay attention to their finances and understand them, understand them better and think about how they think about money. Yeah. And I, and I think it's, you know, so important. I would highly recommend picking it up and, and taking a look at it because it really does break things down into, you know, intuitively make sense. And it starts to help shape the way you think about these things, which is so important because, you know, if you don't start shaping the way that you think about these things, the, the danger is, you know, you're going to rely on what you know, right? And he, there's this great quote in here, um, that says, you know, your personal experience with money maybe makes up 0.0001% of what's happened in the world, but maybe 80% of how you, the way you think the world works. And so by educating yourself and, and thinking about doing reading and, and personal finance is really going to help kind of strengthen your resolve to get through the lean times, to get through the bad times. And as we've discussed, that's, you know, a big part of success financially is being able to do that and being able to, by being able to think about those things in the right perspective. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Great. Always fun. Great book. And uh, if our listeners have questions, feel free to shoot us an email at info at srbadvisors.com. We, as you can tell, we love talking about this stuff. Uh, so if you, if you have questions, give us a shout. Dave, it's always a pleasure. Until next time. Thanks, Nick. Gather round and follow the Kitchen Table Finance Podcast to learn about money and simple ways you can invest right now. You can find more practical advice at srbadvisors.com and contact the team for personal planning by emailing info at srbadvisors.com.